Well, happy darn Culture Cast Day. Welcome, my friend, Jeffrey Madoff. How the heck are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Marissa. Oh, my God. Thanks for joining. And again, at per usual, I think you and I always bring our eyeglass game to the table <laughs> anytime I spend time with you, especially via Zoom. Well, I think we're on in the studio right now. We're right on. Um, so thanks, everyone, too, for joining. We have quite the cast of people who are joining us here who are a collection of people people. So anyone in the talent space. I know we've got a few CEOs and a lot of founders, as well as founder company employees. And you know what, Jeffrey, I meant to mention to you, there's a lot of younger people too. Everyone is in this quest of, you know, what can I do to lead and build culture? And so that's why we are on here today. So everyone, welcome, Jeffrey. I am super excited to talk to you about creating a culture of creativity and legacy. And we'll jump into that in terms of the questions, but creativity is such a big word. And I know um, in promoting the show, we mentioned everyone that you've also written a book called Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, which is amazing. But before we even jump into that, I want to get into who you are. I mean, and a lot of people have sent me notes saying, wow, this dude's legit. He's got an interesting career. Like you've worked with some really huge names in an industry that I love, which is fashion. But before we get into that, like, I want to understand your journey. You know, who are you? Where did you grow up? And what was it in your lifetime that kind of led you down this path of a creative career yourself? I have a couch behind me. Should I lay down on that? I mean, if so you <laughs> want to, that would be fun too. Yeah. yeah. As we enter this therapy session as to who I am and how I got <laughs> here. <laughs> uh, well, it all started with birth. Uh, and, you know, that was the that was the inciting incident. Uh, and I discovered from being in that kind of studio apartment that was in my mom. When I came out into the world, I said, oh, there's an awful lot going on out here. This could be cool. It could take a lifetime to explore it. And that's what I've been doing. Uh, I was really fortunate in terms of my parents because uh, they were very open. They were very much, uh, they very much encouraged me to do what I wanted to do and to be creative. Uh, they had retail stores. So they would bring home large pieces of craft paper wow. because I love drawing. So I would draw and I made comic strips. I loved comic books. And I could put stuff up on the wall. I could do what I wanted. My room was my space. And I think what one of the things that fosters creativity is when you're in kind of an unconditional love situation, if you will, yeah. where you don't feel so horribly vulnerable and at risk of being humiliated or shamed. And I think that a lot of people's creativity is squashed out when they're really young. It can be from parents, it can be from teachers, it can be from peers, because whenever you put something out there that's a part of you and your ideas, you're also in a position to be hurt. And most people avoid that kind of vulnerability. But if there's a strong foundation, you can deal with that and you can deal with that criticism. And also, by the way, I would say that sometimes criticism and anger also fuels creativity. It doesn't just come from one place. I right. happen to think that I was fortunate that I had a happier place. Wow. I think it's amazing. I'm cracking up that while you said you live in the studio apartment, that was your mom. As a child, it sounds like you created an art studio inside your room. You know, I did. in terms of yeah, your drawings and what you've posted up there and kind of this living being that, that you did. And I think that's interesting that you talk about your parents being so open and supportive of letting you just kind of express yourself. And I don't know that I've heard that before, that I think a lot of people are afraid to be vulnerable and put themselves out there because if they're heard, they might get criticized. But you did that as a child. And it sounds like your parents just encourage you to do more of that. Is that right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I guess it, it didn't hurt that I was kind of a wise ass when I was a kid. Okay. <laughs> you know? So if someone did criticize or attack me, I didn't cower from it. 
you know, I had a certain self-confidence, I think, again, reinforced by my parents. Yeah. That, you know, I think it's it's important when you talk about, for instance, culture, which is something yeah. I know so much about. It's about listening. It's about observing. It's about uh, allowing people to make mistakes without criticism, because then you learn and you can grow. And and I think that's across whatever kind of of world you inhabit, you right. know, whether personal relationships, whether it's your job, whether it's a company that you run, uh, you want people to feel safe because when they feel safe, they will express. And when they don't, they'll shut down. And I've seen, and I'm sure you have too, so many companies that have fear-based management mm -hmm. and those leaders who I think are bad leaders because they're kind of toxic leaders, uh, they mistake silence for agreement. Right. But it's rather people are afraid to speak up because they don't want to be humiliated in front of a group. And those are the kinds of things that shut down creativity when they're, when you're a kid. I, you, you have said so much right now that I do want to unpack around culture. I think this is why I so resonate every time I had the chance to sit down with you just personally and just hear what you've been up to. But this whole notion of creating a space that is safe for individuals to be able to express themselves. You know, I think about, and I typically ask, hey, how do you define culture? And I think you define what I align on in terms of definition of culture, which is especially in small, large companies. God, imagine if as leaders and as human beings, we create an environment where people can feel absolute freedom to be themselves and express themselves. You know, and you think about when companies allow for that to happen, where individuals can bring their full selves into what they're doing, look at all these amazing ideas and or bad ideas, right? Ideas, nonetheless, that you're allowing, you know, an organization to actually cultivate. And then from that, you know, that drives performance because people feel confidence from their direct leader. You know, you talk about bad leadership like good leadership it sounds like you know you're enabling someone to express themselves and and they fire up and they have an engagement towards you and quite frankly has this creates this environment of innovation and creativity like i'm reacting to all of that that creativity definitely equals cultivating culture which is fascinating well, it's interesting because I also think, you know, creativity come, can come from a number of different psychological places. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, as I mentioned before, anger can fuel creativity. Being vulnerable can fuel creativity. Uh, all kinds of things can. But I think that what ends up happening, and I think it's, I think it's responsible for some of the social ills mm -hmm. that we are experiencing, whether you're talking about gun violence whether you're talking about racism and sexism and so on, is that people act out because they are acting out th as a, through the trauma they experienced when they were younger. Sometimes that is something that is, becomes a wonderful work. Mm -hmm. it, become, it can become angels in America. It can become an amazing piece of art and an amazing symphony. Uh, and I think that we all have a compelling need to express Mm -hmm. But when you are shut down, when you're a kid, the pressure builds up and there's unfortunately times when that becomes pathological and yeah. the acting out of that can be very harmful to others, uh, whether it's just psychologically harmful or even in some cases physically harmful because they're acting out through that anger and trauma and they never were able to express themselves because they also never felt heard. Right. And those people that never felt heard and who feel marginalized tend to act out in sometimes more violent ways. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I know, didn't know we would go down this turn, but I think it's a really important conversation. Um, I, I agree with you in terms of that period of time in childhood, like the first 10 years. I feel like every successful person I've ever met. Um, and then, and also, working with employees who actually identify, you know, what was it that they experienced in childhood 
that actually becomes a motivator, right? Or detractor to what it is you're trying to accomplish. When I think about motivator, any successful person I've met, and I mean, you are the definition of success in my eyes in terms of, gosh, what I aspire to be, you've defined your path and you've accomplished it and continue to be creative about what else you're doing. Um, you have a self-awareness of what's happened in your childhood. And so I know we kind of went down this road of who is Jeffrey. Now I'm feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm um, projecting on you as well, but I feel like um, allowing that, right. And seeing people and hearing people. So I agree with you. People want to be heard. They also want to be seen, right. From a, a human being standpoint, human to human, and then bring it back to culture and uh, creating a culture of high performance I think that is so important that although as leaders, you know, let's take this back into the workplace, we may not be skilled and nor should we be as uh, therapists, like psychological therapists, we should also practice our skill in being kind and being human and giving people not only the space to express themselves, but also have give them some grace as well, you know, because you don't know what people have gone through unless you get in there, right? And get oh, in the space you're, to do You're that. absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I think that a really simple skill to develop is listening. Yeah. When people feel heard, it opens up so many more productive doorways. Uh, and I'll give you a quick real world example based on, on my play, uh, you know, that, you, you know, I'm working on. Uh, and it's really interesting. Uh, my director, Sheldon Epps, is fantastic and a fantastic collaborator. And I don't care whether you're in theater or film production, which has been my world, or whether you are at Chipotle, which was your world, or yep. Kate Spade or wherever, uh, you know, people want to be acknowledged. And when you when people feel acknowledged, they will take more chances because they don't feel like they're going to be humiliated when they express. And I think that that's really so important. And so in the play, uh, it's called Personality, the Lloyd Price musical. We're opening in Chicago in June. And St. Aubin, who is our Lloyd Price, who was phenomenal. Amazing. We're in the rehearsal room. This is last year when we had our first commercial production. Uh, and in the rehearsal room, we did our first run, full run through the play. And he did this scene towards the end that totally blew me away that I had never seen in the previous four weeks of rehearsal. And I went over to him and said, Saint, that was amazing. And he smiled and said, thank you. And I said, I felt like I was experiencing a rebirth. Wow. And he lit up and he, he, we bumped hands and he said, that's what I was going for. Cause the character goes through a trauma and comes out on the other side. And he was inspired to physicalize that rebirth wow. and trauma through his singing. And it was unbelievable. And I didn't come up with it. It's not in the script. The director Sheldon didn't come up with it, but what we did do is create, a playground. It is called a play after all. Right. A playground where the actors could express and take those kind of chances. In this case, we actually adopted that and we, that went into the play. Uh, and Saint felt heard. He felt his talent had been acknowledged. Now, you know, a lot of times stuff like that happens and that's fine, but you don't go with it. Yeah. This time it did because also when you're working and collaborating with people in any business, mm -hmm. It's prospecting. Not all ideas are good. Right. But unless you prospect, unless you look for that gold amongst the sand and other stuff that's in there, you'll never find it. And that joy of discovery is also a huge part of the creative process. Yeah, I love this. I mean, there's just so many parallels between, again, cultivating an environment and actually a culture of creativity and just creating culture and I, I love the story that you're telling about um, how Saiyan is, is expressing himself. And I think, again, music is more beautiful when you know it's not just someone singing to sing the notes or the words that are on paper, but that they're actually embodying that emotion, right. right? And 
I think it's a great layman's way. And I'm going to nerd out for just a quick second, or I typically nerd out just generally, but I'm going to nerd out that this is a great example too of creating a culture of inclusivity and diversity, right? Yes. And so what I mean by that is allowing people, and to your point, you're just prospecting. You're allowing people to just bring up all these amazing ideas and the fact that they are emotionally attached to it as well, even more beautiful, doesn't mean that all everything's going to be adopted, but I think um, it just makes the end product, you know, in this case, it's this play more beautiful and more marketable. And quite frankly, you know, then the reputation for people wanting to go to this play and it being sold out, like that drives business results at the end of the day. And I think it's interesting sure. that leaders maybe just don't see that process. And it's not like everything, like you open up the floodgates to this playground. Um, Again, that invites like all these ideas that you may have missed because you didn't cultivate this environment of inclusivity and diversity. Yeah, it's good yeah. business. Yeah, right. You're saying it's good business to do that. You know, uh, any business that experiences high turnover is not a well-run business. That's right. Uh, because you're you're taking advantage of people that at the first opportunity of making a penny more, they go someplace else. That's right. And where a business thrives, like I'm, I'm really fortunate in my production business, which the average tenure is about two years till somebody mm -hmm. goes someplace else. I didn't have turnover. And that's because people felt a part of the business. And that to me was just, you know, like being on the playground. We're all playing together. As long as you're good players and play well with each other. You know, right. I think that that's important. And when you say embodying it emotionally, this is true, whether you're in the performing arts or whether you are running a company, you want people committed to that journey. That's right. And that full on commitment is what makes great art. It's also what makes a great company. And, you know, I think that there are so many false walls where ideas get siloed. And people don't realize that if you eliminate those walls and there's crosstalk from so many different disciplines, you're going to come up with something better. And that's how I did it in my company. That's how we're doing it in the play. And I think that's how things really work the best. And, yeah. uh, and I think it's also a healthy environment. Totally. I, I love that idea too. And again, you are redefining for me in layman's terms, this is what diversity and inclusion is. It is about, you know, breaking out of the silos, inviting people from across disciplines, let's just call it that, um, to actually contribute to what it is that you're making and doing. And it just becomes a better product as a result of it. Um, I love that. I mean, I love that you're saying that it doesn't matter. I mean, and the other thing I wanted to respond to, I love that you said when people are emotional, then that creates commitment, you know, inside of company that, gosh, the last thing you'd want is people to not even buy in or not even have a care about what it is that they're working on. And um, I know I nerd on this too. One of the last guests I had on actually a couple of weeks ago, a dear, dear friend, we worked side by side together at Starbucks um, years ago. And she was most recently the president of North America. And I loved her definition of Starbucks retail North America and led this, you know, 250,000 person partner team through the pandemic. And when she talked about culture, she talked about actually that collection of emotions and behaviors and how when you codify that and recognize that and um, create space for people to be seen and heard, that that in itself is allowing people to shape culture. And so in a different way of you saying that, you know, it sounds like you're saying the same thing. I am saying the yeah. same thing because, you know, uh, I'll repeat what I just said a yeah. couple of minutes ago, which is it's good business. There is, you know, I love the fact and my production company that people could talk to anybody in the company and they felt like they were being heard and being yeah. taken care of, which also meant in a small business like mine, it meant that it all didn't fall back on me all the time. That's right. Because I, uh, I don't like the term, but I can't think of a better word right now is it empowered the others to make decisions. Sure. 
you know, and in all businesses to, to go again into the parallel of theater, you should all be reading from the same script. You should have shared goals. You should right. have shared objectives. And when you create that sense of community, you know, there, there's, there's a line in my play where Lloyd, his career makes a giant leap and he has to fire the musicians that he started off with who were local kids who weren't very good. It wasn't going to work out. And the guy that signs them says, look, man, they're not your family. They're your employees. Mm -hmm. Now, I always hate it when I hear businesses say, oh, and we're like a family, because no, you're not. <laughs> you <know? laughs> uh, there are things that happen in business that don't happen in families. You know, I guess there are parents who have fired their son or daughter mm -hmm. in a certain way. Uh, by not loving them or something, but business is different. Uh, it's a transactional situation. And as long as you are bringing value revenues or generating and all of that. Uh, but what helps that is a shared sense of purpose towards that business yeah. and a shared commitment towards it. And in theater, it's, it's kind of the, the same thing. Uh, so Lloyd's response to this guy who was managing him, he says, uh, but they were with me from the beginning. And his response is, well, yeah, well, so is your mama. And she doesn't go on stage with you either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I hear you. You know, so it's it's not like it's all moonbeams and, and roses. There's times you have to make tough decisions in business, too. Well, yeah, I agree with you. I love that you're grounding it on. First of all, it's good business. But at the end of the day, it is about driving business outcomes, you know, for companies. And the reason why you should care about culture and you even just said this, it's having the shared purpose, right? For why you exist. What are the shared goals that you're trying to accomplish to deliver on those business outcomes? And then what kind of environment? And in this case, or in many cases for you, it's this environment of creativity and expression um, that allows y'all, right? To like accomplish those goals, but also live whatever the purpose, or, you know, or the mission is for the company. And you're right. It's not just moonbeams and roses, right? It's not like we're doing this because it feels good. It's like, and we're doing this because it feels good, right? Here's the business part of it, you know? And I think while I might see it a little differently, I do like to say there are extended family or adopted family when there's like a cohort of people that I work with. I think in business now more than ever, I say this, that, um, now more than ever, business is personal. And what I mean by that is, it is about bringing in this human element, which you and I spent a lot of time talking about as we kind of dove into your childhood around allowing people to bring their full selves and express themselves. And that means in business, you also need to be human and different than what you mentioned earlier, leaders who just assume when people are quiet, that they're just agreeing with them. Right. And there's it's creating that space too to let that human actually be part of, you know, all of these things that you're creating, the vision, the purpose, these aligned goals. How do you allow people to express themselves? Right. Yeah. I, oh, I, I completely agree. And and, you know, there are tough decisions. I mean, every day in the paper, we're seeing how certain companies are laying off a lot of people like Amazon and, uh, you know, that. Facebook or Meta, as it's now called, a number of companies, though, that also greatly staffed up during the pandemic because their businesses were thriving during COVID because yeah. people were locked down. It was inevitable those people would get laid off. So those businesses were servicing a need that surged. Yep. But that need didn't last past a certain point. And then as a business leader, you have to realize that you have to lay people off. Right. Because you can't afford to keep them anymore. That's right. So, you know, there's all kinds of factors that come in. And I think good leadership puts everything into context. That's right. And I think that context you're talking about, especially in this environment where there's a lot of companies who are pivoting, right? They grew over the last couple of years for whatever reason, digitally, they were cranking out whatever service or widgets, right? And then now the business has to pivot. I agree with you and that they have to reset, reorganize to do that. All I'm saying is 
yes, make that business decision. And if people aren't part of that equation anymore, treat them with dignity and respect. So to your point, when you talk about leaders putting things in the context, the clearer they are on the why. And um, I think the more personal they are too, that they're talking with human beings. Uh, there's a lot that's happened that I've heard about directly and of course read about it. And then I heard about it when that can't be true where people are learning that. And I've learned in an email, right? That I'm losing my job. And I don't have like any context other than, hey, the business needs to make money. Totally get that. But then I think the context needs to also be the human side. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you're dealing with people. And I think that it's important that you always deal from a place of respect and of empathy. Right. So that you realize, yeah, well, maybe there's somebody going through their spreadsheet and you've got to cut this out. But that's going to have an impact on that person. That's and right. the, the more that you and, and by the way, some I'm sure business leaders protect themselves by looking at ledger seats and not knowing who any of those people are. Mm. You know, and it's just a numbers decision. But I think, again, that's what puts us in a bad place in so many instances. So realizing that there is a human being behind each of those numbers, totally. realizing that those decisions shouldn't be simple because they have impact on other people. Yeah, I think that all of those things are are really important. I mean, nothing drove me. Well, a lot of things drive me crazy. But one of the <laughs> things that drove me crazy was, you know, when the uh, banks were taking and Wall Street were taking huge, Merrill Lynch was a primary offender of this. They were taking huge bonuses, yet laying off many, yeah. many, many people. And I'm thinking if that leadership would have reduced their bonuses or even forfeited them to maintain their employees, you know, at a certain point, you're a pig. Yeah. <laughs> and, wow. Yeah. And, I, and, and I think that again, that's because there's, especially with public companies, the constant striving to show growth every quarter that can destroy humanity. And I think that, 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 that only the profit of, you have to survive in business. Absolutely. And I'm a business person. I know how to survive in business and I know times it's hard, but don't tell me that you were surviving. If you're taking a $47 million bonus and you lay off 3000 people at the same time. Yeah. There's something just inherently awful about that. Well, it's awful. And there's just a huge disconnect. I mean, to me, it's kind of like, all right, you're trying to strive for better bottom line. And yet, yeah, I, I agree with you in terms of take these bankers and actually other large companies like uh, yeah, yeah. Bill, yeah, going big on their bonuses when they're resetting. Um, and I think here's what I love. I don't know if you saw that quote that got up there. I think Andrew Anthony used to be an employee of yours. Yes. I love what you said, Andrew. I really respect the fact that Jeffrey believed in me, even when I may not have always believed in myself. That is the role of creating culture. And that is the role of leadership. I think it is. That's well, thank you, Andrew. I, I was talking, so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't read that there. Amazing. And, yeah. And just let me know what I owe you for that, Andrew. Uh, I, you know, I, some people after they're on payroll, you have to send them checks every once in a while. So they say nice things about you in public, you know, so uh, that was very nice, Andrew. Thank you very much. And I'm glad you felt that way. And, and I truly felt that way. He was, a great person to work with, as were the other people in my company. And there was a real sense of, of camaraderie and fun. I pay, place a really high premium on laughter. Yeah. And uh, I place, place a really high premium because you are with the people you work with most of your waking hours. It ought to be fun. There ought to be mutual respect. And, uh, you know, taking advantage because everybody's got a different perspective of it, taking advantage of those perspectives as a leader, you should also learn from the people that, that work with you. Totally. I agree with you again, here you are defining over and over what it means to be an inclusive and diverse leader. And, you know, I, I want to recognize this and give you kind of mad props for Andrew saying this about you. You know, I respect the fact that he believed in me, even when I may not have always believed in myself, 
the fact that you listened, the fact that you created a space where he can express himself and that you saw him and heard him. Although Andrew, I don't know you. I mean, I have to believe that's what's fire, right? Like that inspires people to like bring their best and want to do their best working in companies. So again, what a great live example of how you roll as it relates to creating creativity, but also creating culture. So mad props to you, dude. Just saying. Well, thank you. Uh, honestly, I don't know how else to be. So it's not like I had to learn these behaviors. And again, I think that goes back to my parents and I saw yeah. how they were with the people that work for them. My sister, owns her own business. She's also an entrepreneur because we grew up in an entrepreneurial household. My mom and dad worked and they created their own business. And so we saw how they treated people. And that was, uh, you know, that was a great object lesson. It wasn't yeah. like a, a calculation. And the thing I'll add about Andrew, which I'm very proud of him because he started his own business and he's successful in his own business. Amazing. And so I feel that whatever he learned from that experience with me, uh, that, you know, he's been able to now take that and build his own company. It's great. Yet show up for this and say something nice about me, which is, which is, you know, that's a good thing. I, I love it. I, I do want to um, see if we can glean some lessons learned from all the pivots you've made in your highly creative career. So the fact that you've worked in fashion, what the heck, man? How did that happen? <laughs> what the heck, man? Uh, <laughs> hell's the matter with you? No, uh, I think it's amazing. I mean, it's like a dream. Okay, go ahead. So I, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin with a double major in philosophy and psychology. Uh, and I was also on the wrestling team. So I wanted to make sure I had a combination of talents that would make me totally unemployable upon graduation. <laughs> so I succeeded in doing that. And uh, I was working in this boutique in Madison where, you know, at the checkout counter was a clothing boutique. We sold rolling papers and hash pipes, that kind of thing. We were in the basement oh. of, or we were in the main floor of a room house and the wall behind the cash register where this really dates it, where the stereo system was. Yeah. When somebody in the rooming house OD'd and fell down the stairs, the arm oh, would no. jump across the record. Oh, <laughs> no. It's quite a place. Interesting place. Anyhow, a dear friend of mine uh, from childhood who graduated from college a year before me said, uh, look, I've saved up some money. Can you think of a gig that would earn more than bank interest? Well, I could always draw, as I mentioned. And, uh, you know, my parents were in the clothing business having retail stores. And I said, uh, I'll start a clothing company. And he said, okay. And uh, within about a week, I got a check in the mail for more money than I had ever had at one time in my life. Amazing. So you're already sitting, because I don't want to knock you over with the amount of money, $2,500. You know, I didn't know if that was a lot or a little. It was just a lot more than I ever had at one Yeah. Time. You know, so that was, that was quite a bit. And I actually established what I think is really important in business, which is a proof of concept. Okay. I sketched up some ideas. I was so naive, Marisa, that I, when I went to uh, the department store and saw fabric on the bolt, yeah. I thought it was, that was wholesale because it hadn't been made into anything yet. Oh no. So I didn't know anything, <laughs> uh, but I had good taste and I could pick out nice things. And I trusted my taste that if I liked it, there must be somebody else that would like it too. So I designed some things and some of the women did alterations for the store, had them sew the stuff together, put it in the store. We sold out immediately. Wow. Made twice as many, sold that out. And uh, I decided to design a whole line, uh, put it into a suitcase, strapped it on the back of my Norton 750 motorcycle, nice. drove to Chicago from Madison, went to 18 stores, sold 15 of them. Wow. And all of a sudden I had like $75,000 worth of orders. And this is back in like 1971. So that was a, That's that was crazy. a lot of money. Yes. The funny thing was, of course, it was great. I sold all this stuff. And then the next question was, well, how in the hell do I actually make it? Because I didn't know anything about manufacturing. So I had to learn that really fast. Wow. Too. 
Uh, and by the time I was 22 or so, I had 110, 120 employees in two factories and an office at the Empire State Building and was coming back and forth from Wisconsin to New York and selling many of the best stores in the country. And uh, although it may sound impressive that I was chosen as one of the top 10 young designers in the United States, I think there were only eight of us. So it wasn't so hard, <laughs> wasn't so hard to be in the top no. 10. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, young people weren't doing startups then. That just yeah. wasn't a thing. And, you know, my hair was the length of yours and I had hair. And, uh, you know, so a lot of people didn't want to do business with me, you know, because they thought, who's this kid? He doesn't have any money. But that business grew. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting. And I think the main lesson that I came away with, and this is in retrospect, because this yeah. is another thing about our psychology, is we all construct our narratives after the fact mm -hmm. so that our lives somehow make sense. You know, and okay. the thing is, there's a lot of serendipity that happens, things that happen by accident, things you could have never anticipated. And anybody who thinks that they've executed some master plan is usually bullshitting because life isn't linear. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And so I was fortunate to build a business that got a lot of national exposure. And uh, and. What I learned in retrospect is whether I was doing fashion design, then I moved to New York and uh, I guess you call it a pivot. But what I did was close the business. My financial backer, who was in Wisconsin, who owned banks, one of the reasons he thought I was an interesting novelty and I was making money and he was a very good man. But he said to me, I'm investing in you also because uh, you are providing employment for Wisconsinites and they all bank at my bank. If you move the base of the business out of Wisconsin to New York, I won't continue to back you. Oh. Wasn't a threat. That yeah. was just part of the deal. He was a very good man and he gave me a great opportunity. Uh, and it was interesting because I felt, and I learned this from my dad, money comes and goes. Time only goes. So I made the decision to close the business because at that point, I realized I was a stimulus junkie and I wanted to move to New York. Yeah. I just loved the energy, the pulse, everything about this city. And now is it a dicey time for New York? That was around the time when there was a famous headline in the New York Post, President Ford to New York City dropped dead. Oh, you know? And uh, but it was a really interesting time in the city, too. You know, if you ever saw the movie Midnight Cowboy, that's what yep. Times Square was like. It wasn't like Disneyland. Like nope. it is now it was seedy, but I kind of dug that. And I would go to Playland, which was a pinball parlor at three in the morning with friends. And it was cool, you know. Uh, so anyhow, when I transitioned into the film business, uh, what I realized is, God, this is the same as the fashion business. OK, it starts with an idea, just like the play I'm doing. It starts with an idea. And then when you take that idea and you begin to make it real by sketching it, by laying out what are the what's the material labor needed? How much is that going to cost? Uh, we have a deadline. How can we fulfill against that deadline? Billing people, then getting paid, all these things. The protocols of almost all businesses are essentially the same thing. There's much more in common than there is different. Mm -hmm. And so I realize that it's oftentimes what separates understanding is vocabulary, hmm. not the true meaning. And that's enabled me to, to go into a number of different directions without, there's probably some foolishness there, but without being afraid because I felt at least I had a rudimentary understanding and I was right. confident enough that it was interesting to me. I could learn how to do it. And if it wasn't interesting to me, I couldn't unscrew a jar because I just didn't pay attention. So the, that, that common thread among all businesses has also served me well yeah. because it demystifies all these different things, you know, and, and it makes it uh, when you realize that there's more, we, and this is true, by the way, of us as people, we have more in common than we do different. Totally. And I wish we could focus more on what we have in common because I think we could move together in a more united way, which Man, I hope we reach that at some point. 
I mean, God, there's just so much to unpack with you, what you just said right now, that with right now, in terms of what we have more in common versus differences. And if people actually took the time to look for that, you know, there's a lot more that as a society we can be accomplishing, you know, instead of all this badness that's happening, I think it does start with human behavior. I mean, to your point, I always talk about, you know, you may not be well-schooled or have all these experiences in life, but what you can do is give people grace, right? It's that I always call it the platinum rule in first grade or even kindergarten. I think I learned the golden rule, which is teach, treat people the way you want to be treated. But really at the end of the day, it's a platinum rule. Treat people the way they want to be treated because, you know, I know I might want to be treated a certain way, but you know, not everyone is me, right? Everyone is their own unique being. And I love this whole thread of kindness that you're talking about. But I think kind of going back to your businesses, though, you know, it's interesting, I think, about how you saw the pattern of what the fundamentals in business are, and you were able to use that as the foundation to kind of pivot and create, you know, I think you've also become the storyteller. You went from creating fashion, which is interesting, and I, you know, I love that because I, I love fashion, but then you went and started helping other brands tell stories when you're, with your production business. I mean, how did that happen? <laughs> that's, well, that's interesting to me. Like, how does that pivot happen from creating clothing to then being the business of storytelling and branding? Well, my first client was Halston. And uh, actually, working with Halston, that's how I met my wife, Margaret, was on a shoot. Nice. Another thing I had no idea was going to happen. <laughs> and, and, you know, 30 some years later with our 29 year old twins, who knew? Wow. You know? uh, yeah. Again, life takes uh, odd turns. And uh, but I think that's how life is. It's a zigzag. It's yeah. not a not a, a sequence. Uh, and shortly after getting Halston as a client, I got Ralph Lauren as a client. I worked with Halston until he stopped working mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately passed away relatively young. Uh, and continued to work with Ralph and got a number of other clients because I had such good clients. And what I realized is that they all had stories and uh, in terms of what their business was. And Ralph was the most clear because his inspiration was the movies. And as his business was growing, because I was with him, I started working with him in 1981. Uh, and I worked with him until COVID shut down. And then I changed whole direction and moved into theater for yeah. what I'm doing. But the, the point is that I said to Ralph at one point, cause he was, he was exhausted. He was having to travel different places cause they were going to be going public in, in the nineties. And I said, look, you can't be everywhere, but a video can be. And mm -hmm. we can tell your story. And he immediately got it as did Halston. Halston was a real visionary designer. And I would say, uh, I mean, Ralph's an amazing marketer. Halston was really smart about creating a brand and a culture. And uh, what I learned is that a brand is a story that's well told. And if you're not a brand, and that's true with any kind of product or service that you're trying to sell, is that you're, if you don't have a brand, you're a commodity. And then you're fighting a price war every time you bring out a product. So, you know, it's interesting. The best example I can give you quickly is Apple. You know, at this point, whether you're buying a Dell or a Lenovo yeah. or an Apple, they all kind of do the same thing. You can argue which one does it better, but there's a lot of not a lot of unity there. But Apple essentially created a religion or a cult, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and so people would line up around the block to get the new iPhone, to get the new Apple computer. And they did that because they had an ongoing narrative, which is what was the true genius of Steve Jobs mm -hmm. was being a great brand steward. They never innovated on anything. Everything that they did, somebody else did it first, be it smartphones, tablets, you know, remember Blackberry and before that yep. Palm Pilot. Yep. Apple didn't innovate on anything. But they did great user interface and more so they marketed. 
they gave computers to kids in school because those kids get older yeah. and then they're working with an Apple interface and know what they're doing. They set it up as kind of the creative computer and they were kind of the underdogs, even though they became the largest company in the world. So, you know, they had a story. All the other computer makers had a commodity. And the difference between a brand and an Uh-oh. We lost you. I don't know what happened there. Yeah, we lost you for a sec, but you, you were just getting into the differences between a brand and then we lost you for 10 seconds. A... You know, I visited with Rod Serling. I was taken into the twilight. I know, very, right? Very strange. It all uh, happens. <laughs> uh, that basically, if you don't have a brand identity, you have a commodity. Yep. And a commodity can only compete on price. Where a brand price isn't the issue. It's that people want it because you've established that, that brand that they want to be a part of because a real, a true brand has an emotional connection with its consumers. I love that. And actually, I want to freeze that comment that you just made. I love that you said, if you don't have a brand identity, then you turn into a commodity. And if you don't have a, if you have a great brand, then consumers will emotionally connect to it and they will be loyal. I want to flip that internally. So I find in the work that I've been doing recently, in advising leaders on culture. And we look at the brand statement that they believe they are externally and you know, for consumer facing companies. If it's true on the outside to consumers, what makes it true on the inside? I think that what makes it true on the inside is consistency. Okay. That everyone is sharing the same message, reading from the same script, so that whoever you talk to in the company, uh, you know, that they're that they are aware of what the company stands for. So there's a shared value. Mm -hmm. Shared values are what create culture. And so I think that that's that's what's critically important. And, you know, oftentimes there is a big gap. And where do you see this, for instance, in the fashion industry? Yeah, is the staggering amounts of bullshit around sustainability. Yep. The fashion industry is not a sustainable business in terms of true sustainability. It's just not. It depends on consumerism every season, you know, that you buy new, buy new, buy new, buy new. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on in terms of companies' websites. You go there and you see all these things, which are just not true. Mm -hmm. uh, but you look at a company like Patagonia. And I had Vincent Stanley as a guest who wrote The Responsible Corporation and who started Patagonia with Yvonne Chouinard. Uh, that was actually Yvonne was his uncle. And from the beginning, you know, they never called themselves sustainable. Uh, but they try to do less harm and they try to do things that are regenerative. And so, you know, there, it's, it's really interesting because more and more with social media, I think consumers, especially younger consumers, pick up on hypocrisy. Yep. And if there is a big gap between who you project, who you are and what's really going on, at some point you will be outed. That's right. That's truth, actually. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think it's fascinating. I'm learning so much just listening to you talk about um, creating brand, right, and having a brand identity and how, if you look at that inwardly, that brand can't be true unless the employees feel alignment to what that company is all about, right? And I have to believe that the values that you talk about are somewhere within that brand that's being exposed or story told to the public. Yeah. And by the way, that's hard to maintain that consistency. That's a lot of work on yep. the side of the customer. But what you have to do also is in these companies look at their organization charts. And so if they have someone who is head of diversity, who do they report to? 
And if they're not reporting to the top people in the company, no policy is going to be adopted that's going to mean anything. And they're window dressing. And I'm sure you know that and have seen that. Absolutely. Right. And actually, you know, that's a whole other topic, probably not for today since we're almost at the top of the hour, where I think if companies are committed to, let's call it diversity, let's call it sustainability, or whatever that commitment is that they're making, that actually it's part of someone's job description. It's not just what you layer on and then it reports into somebody. It's actually part of the strategy, you know, going back to what are the goals for the business? What's the strategy? Unless it's part of that, you know, I don't believe any of that's true. It doesn't care. It doesn't matter if you have like a head of diversity who then reports into, you know, the CEO of the company, unless there's actually real goals and values, everything that you've said aligned to that commitment, whether it's sustainability or diversity, then I don't think it's true. I don't think it, you know, exists. Yeah. And and I think that it's, it's important to understand that because uh, I think what has become a major issue for companies now and anybody who I've, I've been doing some of these brand stories for private equity companies who are selling companies. Yeah. Every company now is in the trust business. And if you don't have the consumer's trust, bad things are going to happen to your company. So, you know, a big gap uh, example of this is a few years ago with Uber Mm. and they're still suffering the repercussions from how they actually behaved as opposed to how they projected they behaved. And, you know, it takes a lifetime to build a strong reputation and it takes one moment to shatter it. Mm. You know, it's like a sledgehammer to glass. That's, that's what happens. So there has to be an ongoing vigilance and it has to be important to maintain that reputation. And, you know, to me, I get asked a lot when I do speaking and they say, well, what do you think of a personal brand and how do you create a good personal brand? I said, you don't create a good personal brand. You know, your personal brand is really simple. It's become tied up in all this language, but a true personal brand is your reputation. Yeah. And you have that with you no matter where you are or what company you're working with or what you're doing. And that's your personal brand. Your personal brand is what they say after you leave the room. And that's what's really important. And that's what's really to be valued is your reputation. And I believe you can only sacrifice your integrity once Hmm. and then you've lost it. Right. So how do you maintain that? And how do you make sure that that's important? And can you be bought off? There's There's a great George Bernard Shaw story where he goes to a party and he meets this woman and he's, and he said to her, madam, would you sleep with me for $5,000? She looks at him and says, yeah, I would. She says, okay, well, would you sleep with me for $20? And she said, what do you think I am a prostitute? And he said, well, we've already established that. Oh, now we're no. just, now just quibbling price. And that's kind of life in, in, in business. And if you decide to sacrifice your integrity, yeah. And uh, and those people who don't like I look at somebody like Robert Iger at Disney, who's come back and now he's taking up the righteous battle in Florida with what DeSantis is trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got integrity. He's a smart business leader uh, and he has and he, he exhibits that in what he does. And that's a massive global corporation. But he has stuck to principle. Yes. Which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Oh my gosh, so many words of wisdom. And I love how you bought it full on to the individual level of not so much your own personal brand, but your reputation and what it is, what people say about you when you're not in the room, right? As a result of them knowing you, spending time with you, et cetera. Um, I, I do want to bring it personally to this level. I know there's lots of folks who are listening and watching this. And if there's like one piece of advice, although there's so much that we've heard around the value of listening, the value of hearing people and seeing people and allowing them to express themselves. I have a neat love about um, the story around personal reputation as well. Like if you were to provide advice to people on what they can be doing themselves to really lead and drive culture wherever they are, what would that be? 
first of all, be curious. Okay. Because if you're curious about something, you're engaged with it. If you're trying to answer a question or, or come up with a solution or solve a problem, that requires curiosity because curiosity is the key to, to unlocking engagement. And when you are curious, that also extends to being curious about other people. Who is that person? Who are these people? And being open and listening, asking questions and then listening and giving those others a chance to speak uh, and then follow up. Because all interaction that's meaningful is a conversation, not a lecture. And that's really important, too. So I think that that curiosity not only engages with people because it shows I'm interested in you, mm -hmm. uh, but it also is what feeds creativity. Because if you're curious, you want to find out about things. You want to find solutions to your own creative issues. Uh, those are the kinds of things that focus you. And for me, the combination of that curiosity, the collaboration that comes with good listening, uh, also leads to fulfillment. Because I don't think you can be fulfilled if you don't have true relationship with other people. Wow. I mean, way to break that down. It's not only about being curious, it's being curious in human beings. It's about listening. It's about building relationships. And I love this point too. It's about having a conversation with people and engaging two ways versus just being curious to be curious, but actually diving deep with people to find out you know, what's driving them. Um, it's been an amazing conversation with you. Jeffrey, and I know there's so much more goodness where people can engage with you. I think upcoming is your upcoming play, which starts in Chicago on Lloyd Price personality. You have your amazing book, which I mentioned at the very beginning of this. How, what are other ways people can engage with you if they're trying to get a hold of you? I would say the best place is probably LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, I post things, including from when you did my class at Parsons, the creative careers class, I, I share the really good ideas and interesting things that, that the many wonderful guests that I've had, you among them, uh, and I share those video clips on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't do much on social media. I've always thought social media is actually misnamed. It should be called corporate media oh. because that's what it is. And it's all about eyeballs, aggregating eyeballs and selling advertising, you know, nothing is free. You know, if it seems like Facebook or Instagram or TikTok is free, it's because they're selling you the audience yeah. to advertisers. So, uh, you know, I, I use LinkedIn because it's more business focused. I love and it. I do use, I, I do use uh, Instagram just to post images or these quotes, but not to sell anything. And I do nothing personal on any social media. Okay. Well, thank you so much. My gratitude to just opening up my mind on not only we start with your childhood, but really got into the psyche of what creates creativity, curiosity, and culture. And I love that. And so I want to say thank you for that. And for anyone who wants to find Jeffrey, hit him up on LinkedIn. I think that's B. Jeffrey Madoff. You will find him there. And hopefully you will all find me again next week with my next guest, another Jeffrey Simonoff, who will be joining me next Thursday, April 13th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. He is the SVP at the RFK Center for Human Rights. So looking forward to talking about culture there. And um, so appreciate you, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right. See you soon. Bye, everyone.